0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Linda Ray, a trailblazer in the realm of neuroscience, leadership, and psychological safety. With a mission to change the world one brain at a time, Linda is dedicated to fostering psychologically safe workplaces. A graduate in neuroscience of leadership from Middlesex University, she's the visionary behind neural Capability a platform bridging the gap between brain behavior and organizational performance. Recognized globally for her pioneering work, Linda's grace stages worldwide as a keynote speaker. Her pillars of curiosity, inclusivity, radical courage, and amplifying impact guide her endeavors. i have asked Linda to join us here today to share her story and discuss the untapped potential of the human brain. So Linda, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm really well, and
1: it's a pleasure to be able to join you today, Daryl.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that we managed to get this, make this happen. And I've got a lot of things I want to ask, but before we jump into the brain, I just got to ask were your parents neuroscientists? How did you even get involved in the brain? Is
1: this like a family fascination? No, my parents were not neuroscientists. And in fact, when I finished biology and chemistry at school, I thought, I'm done with science. I never want to look at it again. <laughs> <laughs> And then I was a coaching and ex- executive in the Navy and um, he said to me, have you looked at this neuroscience stuff? And I, my eyes glazed over and he said, do me a favour and have a look at it before our next session. So I thought, okay, I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. And so I started doing some searching and I went, oh, my goodness, this is the missing link for me. This is the evidence and the science that shows how people behave and how as leaders we need to be developing our understanding of how the brain drives behavior. And so I didn't look back. That was in 2006. So I've been, I guess, a scientist of my own experience for nearly a couple of decades. And and it's been fantastic.
0: All right. So you jump into neuroscience. What was it that originally piqued your interest?
1: I think it was that um, a lot of the work that I'd been involved in was really looking at Trying to help people understand the importance of the soft skills, if you like, and looking at things like values and beliefs, but we didn't. We it really didn't unlock the secrets around what happens in the brain when we actually utilise those soft skills. So I think it was bringing in an evidence base that I could share with virtually anyone from any industry. The more technically minded people really like to see strong evidence based practice and why so what's the proof here and so he gave me the opportunity to say here's the proof this is what we know from decades of insights emerging from neuroscience can you describe
0: for us what are evidence-based soft skills
1: if, if you think about things like listening deeply we know that's a really important soft skill but what we tend to do is listen shallowly and that's because brain to connect up with what the other person's saying. We know that the brain experiences reward when we give advice. So we're going straight into solution mode to say, oh yeah, I think what you should do here is this. So there's a whole range of things that we can challenge people around from using a very autocratic style of leadership that puts people into threat. And so we know that the One of the key organising principles of the brain is minimise threat, maximise reward, and the key role of our brain is to keep us safe and alive. So how do we help people, leaders, understand that um, they influence the psychological safety of their people 75% and how do we equip them with the the skills and the behaviours and the tools and the strategies so that they can improve psychological safety and, and improve performance of their people?
0: I love this. So I I don't have a neuroscience background, but just hearing you talk, I feel I just had a vision of visualized just a, a portfolio of instances where I understand exactly what you mean. Can you speak to a
1: psychologically safe workspace? What does that mean? Psychological safety isn't a new concept, but I think it's really come to attention around the globe from the work of Professor Professor Amy Edmondson when she was looking at the concept in in her work in in hospitals and in relation to medication error reporting. And um, much to her surprise, she found that in teams where there are higher levels of medication error reporting, there was higher levels of psychological safety. And she had predicted the opposite. So that really got her thinking about it. And so she started to understand that People, when they feel psychologically safe, they feel okay to challenge a doctor and put their hand up and say, I don't think this is okay. So really, psychological safety is about our capacity to feel like we can speak up and speak out without fear or retribution, that our ideas won't be rejected or we won't be humiliated. We would see high levels of trust and mutual respect. And then we saw Project Aristotle from Google where they looked at what was the key ingredient in high-performing teams, what was the secret? And they spent two years, and anyone can Google this, there's lots of lots of information about it, two years, and they still couldn't work it out. And then they turned to the work that Amy Edmondson had done around social norms, and they looked at all of this new lens, and they found five key ingredients in every high-performing team at Google, but the most important was psychological safety.
0: What were the other four? You piqued my curiosity now.
1: It was clarity, impact, meaning, structure. Clarity, sorry, structure, clarity, impact, meaning, and psychological safety.
0: Structural clarity, impact, meaning, psychological safety.
1: Yes. So people were really clear about their roles. They knew what the expectations were. They understood how what they were doing was contributing to the greater good of the team or the organization what they were doing had some personal meaning and and gave them some joy and people were really clear about structures and processes but you could have psychological safety and the other four would follow so it was found to be the the critical ingredient
0: i love that i love that so much can so can we give a couple so it sounds like what you're saying is when someone feels psychologically safe it means that it's almost like an emotional intelligence thing in the sense of I think it gets to the core of what emotional intelligence is and that's really connecting with the other person's brain and that's creating an environment where communication can flow freely where mm-hmm. it's had me thinking about static versus dynamic societies there's the godfather of quantum computing David Deutsch wrote a book called the beginning of infinity and then in he talks about static societies versus dynamic and how in static societies it's all about maintaining the status quo and often this is because some rule books are written in blood so we got to maintain the status quo. But at the same time, a lot of static societies have disappeared because they weren't able to evolve with the times. And that required a dynamic society where the best ideas get moved forward, almost like a meritocracy. And so it almost sounds like we are talking about in, in, in psychological safety. That's what I'm hearing is you're almost creating a meritocracy where people are able to optimize for peak performance and to eliminate errors from the workplace, whether it's our designs could be better, whether it's, hey, mm-hmm. our meetings aren't as productive as they could be. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that a fair estimation of what you're saying? What a beautiful
1: summary. It, it's absolutely, you're spot on. Okay. And I think when you, when you think about what the brain, how it operates, so moment by moment, we're taking in around 11 million bits of information, okay? Think about what would happen if you were aware of that. you would just go melt right. meltdown, wouldn't you? Right. And so your brain is very carefully filtering out information through our senses in the ultimate answering of one key question, am I safe? And when we don't feel safe, that kind of activates fight and flee response and a whole kind of neurophysiological response which releases cortisol and adrenaline and all those things because our brain doesn't really distinguish between the modern world and when we lived in caves and clans. And so we're doing that, and that's what guides our action. And I've taken the concept of psychological safety and extended it beyond that, because I thought there was something missing. And what I've discovered through all of my research is, and I think we're seeing a lot more reference to the term psychosocial safety. So social safety is really our assessment. We make a snap judgment, and this happens pretty much outside of our conscious awareness of are we safe or not safe. We walk into a meeting, we see right. people are, or hunkered down, they're not really engaging and yeah. we go, something that might harm them might harm us, so I better hunker down too. And it's not until our brain has gone through that process and we start feeling then whether we're psychologically safe or not. So social safety is our, our appetite in that social context for taking interpersonal risks and then psychological safety is our intrapersonal. It's how we a left feeling from that that assessment.
0: I love that. So what you're saying speaks really well to the research that I did. In 2020, I had 10 research assistants help me comb through all the academic literature on business success. So I've helped companies make hundreds of thousands and even uh, a million here, a million there. But I, I quickly realized with one client who was almost wiped out by the IRS that sales alone don't guarantee business success. And during the pandemic, everybody was arguing about the science of this, the science of that. And it made me wonder what does the science, what does the research have to say about business success? So we went through everything that we could and we found eight critical success factors. Those were, and these were studies from Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Australia, America, worldwide. Mm -hmm. And we found that our eight factors were self efficacy, market intelligence, strategic planning, marketing strategy, sales strategy and skills, money management, business operations, and business intelligence. And that All things from your hiring, your HR practice, legal compliance, cybersecurity, they fit under those umbrellas. And then we tried to break down each factor into its components. And for us, self-efficacy were specific personality traits, leadership skills, and personal disciplines. And what you're saying fits so nicely into the personality traits and the leadership skills. So the personality traits were locus of control, which is about being a control freak about what you can control. Extroversion, because in business, we have to be willing to engage with the outside world. Openness Mm. to experience, agreeableness, conscientiousness, acceptance of criticism and feedback. Mm. Those were positive correlates to success. And the leadership skills that we found Mm. was self-awareness, communication cooperation skills, emotional intelligence, and adaptability. And Mm. from those two categories I mentioned, personality traits, leadership skills, I would say over half, like 70%, 80% of those are speaking to what you're saying and calling kind of psychosocial safety. And that makes perfect sense the ability to communicate with people make people relaxed create, create mm. morals typically what grease the wheels of social interaction mm. it almost sounds like that's what psychological safety is out to try and do to grease the mm. wheels of
1: social interaction to reduce that's friction it. and improve mm. communication between brains mm. and I, I think it's spot on and i really like those those points that you've just gone through and i can see the parallels with yeah what we're from yeah. particularly cognitive social neuroscience. I wanted to circle back to something that you said, if that's okay, because I think sure. it's a really important point for your listeners. You talked about people being fo- focused on sales. So people, are, companies are very focused on business results. So, what is What are the shareholder returns here? Are we growing? And the interesting thing is that's a lag indicator. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people focus attention on lag indicators when we know from all of the research shows very compellingly that we need to be focusing on lead indicators. So we need to be looking at psychosocial safety because that influences customer experience, being of our employees, engagement, innovation, uh, our capacity to collaborate. That then in turn influences the culture that emerges in an organisation. That then in, in, in influences business results. Yes. But people are starting from the outside in. We're seeing people going, oh, we need to do a cultural transformation or oh, we need to do an engagement survey. I got so fed up with engagement surveys that um, because I really don't think they made any difference. And I ask a lot of people, has it made a difference? No, not really. And so I decided, let's see if there's a psych- psychosocial safety tool that we can use in as a, a lead indicator. And I couldn't find one, so I came up with my own. <laughs> so we've been measuring psychological safety in organisations and showing the link between psychological safety and performance. You now, yeah. we can demonstrate it. It's very clear. I love this. I love this because all a company
0: is, is a group of people trying to solve the pain of another group of people and they do it via a product or service. So you mentioned a couple of things. I added one, it's customer experience, staff morale, trust. Mm-hmm. If I have a problem, I one of my, one of a mentor I worked with a while ago, he's talk about, sales is about getting people to put their swollen testicle on the table. And what that means is like someone has something they're a little bit shy about admitting. Right. And uh-huh. they don't really want to talk about it. They tell you, Oh, I got a problem with my cough or something. I just need some, uh-huh. but the real issue is they have a swollen testicle and they don't want to tell about it. They don't want to show it. They don't want anything. And you have to build, create a, a, a an environment of trust uh-huh. and friendliness, essentially of empathy where they feel safe uh-huh. and comfortable to put their testicle on the table so you can examine the problem. Mm -hmm. And then they have to trust and believe in your prescription for how to solve the problem. And Mm -hmm. so the psychological safety, the psychosocial safety, I feel like I agree a hundred percent that I know that as business owners, we were focused on how much money can we make? Are -hmm. we getting, are we getting capacity utilization from everything? And that's a fancy word to mean getting all we can from what we've got our staff working for what we're, are we getting the most out of everything? By the end of the day, business is about helping people. Oh. And it's tough to do if it's a stressful environment. You have to find, I think, that balance. You might be able to short-term stress people out. Or you can crack the whip, but you're not going to get long-term. I always say, even if you don't have an ethical bone in your body, the best way to do business if you're in this long the long game is the love on everyone. Your vendors, your staff, your customers. Yes. And that's almost what you're talking about. Psychological safety, is safety, you can't really do without empathy and love. Is that Yes, that's true.
1: But I also think a lot of people misunderstand psychosocial safety, and they think it's about being nice to each other and singing kumbaya. Nice. And that's not the case. When we have an environment where there is high levels of psychological safety, it also means that we are courageous in holding each other to account. Yes. So I, I've measured psych safety in organisations, and there's high levels of psychological safety, but they're not performing. They're spending all their time hanging, hanging out together and having really long lunches, but no one's right. having to account for what they've agreed as outcomes and expectations or goals that they're pursuing.
0: Yeah. I think there is something about being in the zone when skill, there's like the intersection between skill and ability and pressure to perform in a mm-hmm. finite amount of time. And that's when mm-hmm. people get into the zone. If they're unskilled enough, to perform, then it just results in stress any amount of pressure mm-hmm. to do. It's like asking a fish to climb a tree. If there's no skill there, it's just going to create mm-hmm. stress. But at the same time, if there is skill and there's no pressure, everything's just mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. And so you have to find that intersection. I think that's, that's. I, I love what you said, like a stern, but loving parent was <laughs> maybe the best way to put it. A stern, but loving, we have to make reasonable progress that, or uh, meaningful progress in reasonable mm-hmm. time. And Mm. I think that's an important thing because nothing stands still. And we're all, life is one big competition. Mm. Mm. And especially since COVID, more and more people are work from home. More people have Ah. realized we're competing with almost anyone with a laptop. Teenager Mm. in their basement could possibly become a competitor. So there is pressure to perform, Mm. but at the same time, you need to show up at your best. Can you talk about some of, let's go through some myths here. Let's talk about hustle culture. How does hustle culture influence peak performance, so to speak? Is it good to be on four hours of sleep
1: and grinding it out every day? Can we speak to that a little bit? Very simply, the answer to that is no. And I think that's what really concerns me is that people at the moment, the levels of burnout are off the scale. And this idea that if we sleep four hours, or we work 16 hours, maybe we eat somewhere in between there. We know that the brain actually cannot function for that period of time and in fact all of the research shows that you are more effective in working six to eight hours a day than 14 hours a day because when you're committing your brain to working 14 hours a day your brain slows things down and we know that um, sleep is absolutely critical for uh, brain hygiene and supporting you to be able to think clearly the next day yeah it's I'm... a killer for innovation when you're tired you don't have insight And we need to create those conditions for insight to flourish, so that people can be innovative and and solve wicked, complex problems. So you already spoke to it a little bit.
0: What are the biggest mistakes people are making in terms of setting themselves up? Because I like to use the analogy, just let me, I'll rant for a second, but a lot of people don't realize truck drivers by law in pretty much every country have to get a certain Mm -hmm. amount of rest You're unable to drive more than I think it's like 12 to 16 hours max. And I think the purpose of that is because if not properly rested, it is the equivalent to driving drunk. It is the equivalent to driving intoxicated. So you've got hustle culture, people stacking four hour sleep days on top of each other. It is like day of drunken business decision on top of day of drunken business decision. Mm -hmm. And we all know people that work hard and don't amount to much in life. Hard work is a requirement for success, but it is, does not guarantee success. You have to work hard. Hard work will always be talent when talent refuses to work hard. Yes. Mm. But you also need to work smart. And for that, you have to show up with your fully
1: functioning brain intact. Mm. I think one of the things that's really critical that people don't understand is we've been through this technological revolution, which means yep. I love technology. What we haven't done is we haven't established at the same time protocols and processes to manage our attention at work. So let me give you an example. Most people that I work with and deal with, they generally have their email alert on, they have Slack, or all the notifications are popping up constantly. What we know from the neuroscience of distraction is that when your brain sees a notification, your brain goes, is that a threat or a reward? Is that going to keep me safe or not safe? better check it out. Now, if you're on the verge of an insight or you're doing very heavy cognitive work, uh, Gloria Marx's research from um, California U- University shows it can take as much as 23 minutes to get back to that yeah. brain state that you're in. Now, you add that up during the day. And if you go, you have five, and we know there's many more than five interruptions per day, then we're losing all of this time where we could be productive. Yep. And we see people go into meetings with no understanding of why they're there. Oh, why are we meeting here today? When we ask people to come warmed up to the meeting, they've actually already started to engage in those brain processes that get them to think much more creatively. So there's so many things that we're doing wrong and acting against how the brain operates at peak performance. And I guess it's only through some education that people start to go, oh, maybe I should turn off my alerts. Maybe we should have something like meeting-free Mondays so that we actually mm. get some time to do some very great work or other people have implemented things like the hour of power and that hour of power is when no one disturbs anyone else in the team and it doesn't have to be at the same time. And we know some people are very good in late in the day, early, early evening. I'm a early bird, so my hour of powers would always be very, uh, first thing in the morning or, or focus time. So there's... There's a whole range of tools and strategies that we can put in place for that. And I, I think it's something we haven't paid enough attention to, this mm. idea. And a lot of people think they're really good at multitasking. And yet that's an absolute myth. Yes. <laughs> when you're doing two things at once and you're switching between things, there's this thing called task switching cost. So every time you move your attention from one to the other, you use up precious energy in the brain. And the, the brain is, a, it, it has a certain amount of energy. And if we're using it really stupidly by multitasking, yep. Yep. and we know also that when you multitask, you make many more mistakes. And yet a lot of people still say, hey, I'm a great multitasker. Yep. You really should be just focusing on one thing at a time because that's all the brain can biologically do.
0: I, lo- I love that. I love that
1: so much. So what are some of the four pillars of ph- phenomenal brain health? Uh, I think that most people know a lot about what these are so it's sleep hygiene making sure you get good sleep obviously health uh, eating well and also exercise but I think the other thing that we don't talk about in terms of keeping your brain well is are things like how do we allow our brain quiet moments. You go and stand in the supermarket or go to dinner and everyone's on their device. And yet we know that the brain actually needs quiet time. And so we're not giving our brains any quiet times. So a lot of people meditate or they engage in, in mindfulness, but we also have seen the research emerging from just going out in nature without your phone. Like even if you have your phone in your pocket or in your bag, your brain is going, you better not really completely relax here because your phone might go off. Mm. So it's about how do we find that device-free time that allows us to just give our brain a break and let it recharge.
0: I, mean, I We love kind of that. think
1: that, that employees are commodities with endless amounts of, in, uh, of energy, and yet this is simply not the case.
0: Oh, I love this. Yes. It's not just time management. It's energy management. And I think this feeds into what you mentioned about exercise. So I am a big fitness buff in mm-hmm. the sense of I've, I learned, especially with my daughter, who's turning five soon, that her psychological development, her mental development will never outpace her physical development. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, I realized this if your brain. So one of the things that I really prioritize is you've talked about this. We do a family and I can only speak to myself. So you are the neuroscientist. You're the expert. But I feel more confident about the habits, we'll say. Because I mentioned before that we hit record that I eat research p- papers like candy. And first off, I, for a lot of people here, if suggestion, who, when we talk about our phones, this is supposed to be a tool that we mm-hmm. use for our benefit of our lives. But when we have notifications on, when it buzzes and rings and these things, we are now giving it control over us. <laughs> so personally, <laughs> my phone is forever on silent. You could be, and it it never goes off silent. It is never off silent ever. Mm-hmm. It it, it oh, never wow. vibrates. It never nothing. And recently, I deleted all social media that has any sort of feed. I just use mm-hmm. the messengers. If it's got a feed, I don't. I give it to my staff to go mm-hmm. into or something to preserve that, like you say, that quality of attention. When we wake up in a day, willpower is very limited, and mm-hmm. so that's where you see a lot of high performance people. They wear the same clothes every day, or they don't decide right. They it's, they mm-hmm. limit the decisions that they make so they have more power, okay. more energy for the ones that mm-hmm. they have. And we talk about energy in a day. It's not just time management; it's energy management. If I, if right now all you can do is run one kilometer or one mile, and at the end of that you're mm. like, oh, "I'm exhausted. I got to lay down, and take a nap." Mm. That is your energy gas tank you bring to the day. But now I snap my fingers, and you can run ten times as far. Mm. You have ten x your mental resilience, your energy output that you have, your gas tank for a day. Mm. The human body is a phenomenal machine. Where uh, if we don't use up all of our energy every day our body will produce less in the future. Mm, Exactly. You're never going to run a seven minute mile running it in 15 minutes. Mm. You have to push it to use up all of its energy faster Mm. and then heal and come back stronger. Mm. And that's a really kind of counterintuitive thing where you have to lean into the pain and suffering, so to speak,
1: Mm. to to Mm. push yourself for that. Mm. Um, and, and people experience pain and suffering when they turn off their notifications, Daryl, because right. when that little beep or ping actually um, releases dopamine in the brain, yep. so yep. there's we become addicted to it. So the idea of of turning it off, and I deliver a lot of training for executives and have over the many years. And when I first started doing training many years ago, we didn't have mobile phones in the room. Yep. Yeah, you know, someone left a message at reception, yep. and yet now people say oh, I have to have my phone on, and 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 I really challenge that. I say, yeah, is someone going to die if you don't respond to yeah. that call yeah. straight away? Or how do you make sure people know you won't be responding to anything for this eight hours? Because when we're in in a like trying a learning environment, and we get an email that kind of makes us flip our lid and we go into a bit of threat mode then we don't learn and listen because we're right. focused on trying to solve that thing. Yep. And the other the other thing I think is a massive challenge and I often do this at the beginning I say hands up all the people that the first thing you do is look at your phone in the morning. In the morning. Yeah. And look at your emails or look at the news. That sets us up for particularly if the news is bad yep. that primes us to be on the lookout for things that aren't going great. Yes. If, And when most of us, we want to be present for our partners or our family, and we become distracted and preoccupied by work before, even at work, whether that be home office or in in an office. And I know some organizations are implementing where you cannot look at your emails between six o'clock and eight o'clock the next morning. So we're starting to see some of those protocols come in place, but... Really, we've had technology around for a very long time. And a lot of people say to me, I'm exhausted, I'm burnt out. I recommend they're experiencing distraction fatigue. Okay? Mm, I,
0: I would agree with that. Again, it comes to, we're, we are smart. We are infinitely smart people. And, and I think it's a multifaceted problem in the sense that our, our education system, it's done its best to get us this far, but there's a lot lacking in the sense that it was created based off of, I think it was Persian Peruvian Persian, the Persian Empire's training system, there was a Persian king, Prussia, maybe it was Prussia, he had lost Mm. against the Spaniards and knew that if he didn't rebuild his army quickly, he would lose it all, and so he Mm. developed a training process to train up loyal, obedient, skillful soldiers Mm. for specific roles in the army, and that became the foundation for our current Mm. education system, which was designed to create factory workers, and we know this because breaks are announced with a factory bell. You are arranged, desarranged in assembly line rows and your teacher gives you a quality control scorecard. And so this has been good, but it, the fo- purpose has not been to produce knowledge workers in the sense of creative thinkers and problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And this is really important because you talk about people being burnt out. I'm, again, I can only speak personal experience. I accepted a new client recently and I knew that it would be about three weeks to a month, maybe five weeks of imposing on my normal routine and schedule. And that was just to get everything up and running. And then we created some software tools in-house that basically share the work. And now with an assistant, I it's 15, hours, 15 minutes a day for me, whereas before oh. it was a three to four hour per day commitment. Oh. And that's just because I knew that we could crawl, walk, run. We do the oh. process enough. We figure yeah. out the process. Now we can put systems oh. in place and on software, oh. automate it. And then it'll perform at a higher performance level. So I think that's a really important thing. And I also want to say for the listeners that not everything in the jungle kills you and eats you. Some oh. things feed on you for as long as possible. And you have to remember mm. that there's producers and consumers and the producers mm. earn when the consumers consume. So the longer mm. social media can keep you consuming and checking your newsfeed and mm. all that stuff, the more that they make showing ads and all that stuff, but it may not add any value to your life. And I love that you talked about how basically companies are initiating sort of policies around planning your day and working your plan. I think that is critically important. I've designated times for certain things. I mentioned I deleted all my social media. It doesn't mean I'm not on social media, but it means that I cannot do, I have to do it on my laptop, not my phone. And I cannot do it when I'm at my work desk. I have spots in my house. I have to sit there if I'm going to do that, because that is the only time and place those things are allowed. And again, I'm only speaking for myself. Uh, but I am a little OCD with this stuff, and I think that there's probably some good suggestions. I think it's great you're looking
1: after your brain, and I, yeah. I hope your listeners take a leaf out of your book because that's precisely what we advocate. I love, it. I thank interested you to hear you say about the school system, and that whole obedience that that culture authority has bled into organizations. I think oh, yeah. One of the greatest examples of this is performance appraisals, right. which were really taken from. The military, who were wanting to see if their soldiers were performing in order to decide if they were going to dis- dismiss them or dis- discharge them.
0: Mm. And yet,
1: we still see individual performance appraisals when we largely work in teams. And mm. I, I love really that. Think it's a waste of time. And and you ask how many people say, Oh, I look forward to my quarterly performance appraisal. <laughs> I think you'll find too many takers. It's interesting. We. If you think about what we do with leaders, we often promote them into leadership positions because they're good at their job. They're very technically competent. And we set them up for failure. We don't give them the handbook on how to lead people. <laughs> and, and I think that's a really massive underinvestment in organisations is the people component. I love you know? that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Sorry,
0: sorry, I didn't mean to keep yeah. So
1: really, you're trying to promote support leaders to develop skills where they're having conversations, development conversations once a quarter, at least once a week. And we know people coming into the workforce now, I look at my son and daughter, they're 25 and 23. They want growth and development. They want to learn and they want to um, improve and and they want to see that people are investing in them.
0: hundred percent. hundred percent. I think they call it the Peter Principle. Which you're talking about when you're good yeah. at we talk about sales. So you're a good sales rep. Let's make you a sales trainer. Oh, you're a good sales trainer. Let's make you a sales team manager. Oh, you're a good sales team manager. Let's make you a regional sales team manager. Oh, you're great. Let's make you VP of sales. Oh, you suck at that. Let's just leave you here because we can't demote you and you're not good, so we can't promote you. So oh. people get promoted to their highest level of incompetence, oh. and then oh. they just get stuck there. Which is an interesting problem, and a lot of ways people I think tried to work around that is there was a lot more jumping from company to grow and develop their career, finding Um. higher paying roles and responsibilities that fit their skill sets versus just being promoted Um. to a certain level. But I do know that I've talked to a lot of leaders recently, and there seems to be a trend since COVID at least of a more of an emphasis on having to train up skill and talents. Can you speak a little? Yeah, sorry, you're going to say something. No, please. What, what was your question? I wanted to ask about and that, like, how do we train? Because when you, to overcome something like the Peter Principle, we have to either, some people have certain hardwired things in their personality, and that just is, but a lot of behavior can be influenced. How do we train behavior? How do we develop new habits? How do we do that for a sustain, what am I trying to say, on a permanent basis?
1: That's a great question. I really like that question, because I think what we've done in the past is what I call the sheep dip approach. We get these people and we send them off to a two-day program, yep. fill their heads through it with a whole bunch of leadership theory, and then we go, off you go. Uh, and yet we know from how the brain uh, builds habits and encodes memories, that is really inefficient and it doesn't work. So we, we are, I think one of the great things about COVID is we've seen a little bit of a shift onto more blended learning kind of approaches where there's some online and then we bring people together. But we also see all of the research that shows one of the most effective strategies. Obviously you need some education and we would always start with understanding your brain and how that drives behavior. But then we need coaching in order to continue to build the habits around those things that we wanna see in a leader. What are the habits to be able to facilitate a psychosocially safe environment? What are the things we need you to focus your attention on? It takes anywhere from 23 to 284 days to build a new habit based on the complexity of that habit. Mm. And so saying to someone, hey, I'm a very good listener, I really need to dial up your listening skills. Yeah. What's that gonna do? If if it's a habit, if they've been if they have a habit of being an interrupter and having a telling style of leadership, just asking them to switch overnight to being a listener and and having a curious mindset it it doesn't happen overnight it actually has to be something that we help people to build those capabilities and skills that allow them to positively influence that psychosocial environment of their team
0: i love gardening i've really put an emphasis on trying to get my daughter to to love flowers and plants because hearing you talk about that i feel like there's a correlation in the sense of, so many people grow up in urban city centers where they're so detached from the natural processes of the earth that mm. we and we live in this instant gratification society that there's a disconnect. Like what you talked about, it's going to take 23 to 240 days to nurture and change. Like if mm. if I feel like gardening is such a fantastic skill for all ages mm. uh, and, and levels because it really teaches you the process of sowing mm. before you reap of preparing the soil before you plant, that oh. apple trees will not give you peaches, that there's all these little like little life lessons in there in oh. gardening. And just as you're talking about habits and, and having to nurture, you can't cover your eyes and be like, there are no weeds, there are no weeds, there are no weeds. You have to look and pull the weeds, or you have to figure out a way to turn them into compost. Like recently, oh. sidebar, I learned that cardboard is actually a great way to help control weeds without unrooting everything. You can just Hmm. put some cardboard down to kill the weeds, but then they turn into natural compost and you're not tilling the soil. I'm into no tilling. I'm into regenerative permaculture. Hmm. And so this is just a simple example of just little processes that that I think it's just a power. Anyway, maybe I'm on a bit of a tangent here, but just when you talked about 23, 240 days, like there's an iterative process Naval, a guy I really like, he says, it's not 10,000 hours, it's 10,000 iterations. That's almost what you're talking about. You have 23, 240 attempts to get rid of that habit before Mm you actually do it. When you say we know how habits development work, can you speak to that a little bit? Like for people that are like, okay, okay. All right, Daryl. All right, Linda. I Mm -hmm. I believe what you're saying. What do I need to do to change? How do I modify my behavior?
1: I guess that's a lot of the work we do in assessing psychosocial safety. So that gives us like a baseline of, what is this leader doing or not doing, that we can then support them to build and grow in that behaviour. I guess from a behaviour, from a habit-forming perspective, what we know is that we have to focus our attention and positively frame goals instead of saying, I don't want to be unhealthy. It's about I would like to have Mm. a, a healthy lifestyle. So we need to think about how we frame it. I want to get rid of my bad listening skills. It has to be, Mm. I want to become really good at deep listening. So it has to be something that you feel will be a reward at the end. The the other thing I think is having cues. Uh, So we have about a thousand open intentions at any one time to change a behaviour or a habit. And often we don't do anything about it. So we need, the brain needs to be cued. So, we need little reminders. So, it could be, for example, with the listening one, I often say to leaders, a really good acronym to adopt is called WAIT. Why am I talking? So, they have that on a piece of paper in front of them because often they're not good at listening and they're not comfortable. And yet, we know that silence is necessary for insight and has to actually get quiet. So, little cues can help us keep on track of that. Also publicly declaring it to other people and saying, hey, I need your help with this. I really would like to work on my listening skills. If you see me interrupting, can you give me a kick under the table or acknowledge when I'm doing a really good job? We need to be those wins and successes helps to stay motivated to develop that new habit. Did you say wait?
0: Was that an acronym?
1: Why why am I talking?
0: Oh, there we go. Okay. I, th- I was waiting for the others. I was like, okay, why? But got it. Why am I talking? I th- That's so powerful. I actually, I don't remember where I got it, but I would go to meetings with a piece of paper written on my, in my pocket saying, what if they're right? I think I still maybe is, am a bit of an aggressive, mm-hmm. assertive personality type, but I often, whenever I feel myself disagreeing with someone, I say,
1: what, if they're, right? what mm-hmm. if they're right? What if they're right? What if they're right? Consider oh, the alternatives. That, that, that's a beautiful example of a cue. Like right. if your brain was aware of it being in your pocket. So it doesn't have to be on a piece of paper. It can be in your pocket. Yep. It can be under your pillow when you go to sleep at night. But that's a great example. I love that.
0: Yeah. I think you, the why am I talking is good too. I, mm-hmm. Silence. Music is as much silence as it is noise. Without mm-hmm. the pauses, there would be no melody. And so I think your point on needing to take rest from just feeding your brain, feeding feeding your brain and just let it process and digest. I know some people when they meditate, they're like, oh, I just focus on my breathing or I visualize Mm -hmm. stuff. There's also a group of people where they just nothing. They just, I'm setting aside this time to sit in sensory deprivation almost, my eyes closed, quiet room, dark, softly lit and just let my brain just do what it needs to do. And I've just oh. committed to sit there until the timer goes off in 20 minutes, oh. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And whatever I want to think about, I'll think about it, I'll observe it, I'll let it go. Uh, the next thought, I observe it, let it go. And I mm-hmm. think that's a really just science based now validation that there's action within action. You, you need to do nothing every day so you can get, you can do right. something. Yeah.
1: Right. This just reminds me of some research that I just came across. I haven't really looked into it in depth yet. But it was looking at people that have tension deficit or whatever you call it, ADHD. And what they did was, because they can't turn their brains off, it's really hard. To ask them to do that is pretty much an impossible task. So what they did instead was they said to these people, if you notice a thought coming in, just say to yourself, I wonder what my next thought would be. And by just saying, I wonder what my next thought would be, it actually stopped them having thoughts intrude. So it was really fascinating. And and I tried it the other day when I was unnecessarily ruminating about something and I thought, and I sit in my head, I wonder what my thought next thought's gonna be about this. And it, I don't know, it just created this space. It was really it was really lovely. So there's lots of things we still don't know about the brain. Like, why does that work? And I'm really keen to dive into that and have a look at that.
0: Taking notes. I'm a writer downer. Even if I never look at it again, I write things down a lot. (laughs) What are your thoughts on, was it nootropics supplements for brain health? Are there any that you think have good solid evidence behind them? Is there any that would be beneficial
1: or is it just sleep,
0: diet, and exercise?
1: I think sleep, diet, and exercise are really critical. And I get a little bit wary about the supplements coming on the market and what is the evidence? Really do your research. Otherwise you might be just wasting your money. There are some really good neuroscience-based books looking at the best diet. So I think you're much better off actually looking at what is it that you put in your body and how is that being neuroprotective for your brain? Olive oils and Mediterranean diet, That's all, there's tons of evidence around how that is neuroprotective. And we need to be thinking about this because as a, as we age as a population, we're seeing more and more dementia and Alzheimer's, Yep. My father developed dementia and Alzheimer's and lived till he was 90, but passed away about 18 months ago. Yep. We were big on things like berries and just looking at things that are naturally good for us. I Always think, why are we taking supplements unless how can we get that nutrient and neuroprotective factors through our diet? Yeah, I, I love that. It's In not a- my area, it's not my area of expertise, I must say. That's just uh, my personal belief. Uh, I'll, I'll drop some because
0: it is my area of expertise. And so first off, you can't outwork a bad diet. A lot of people think this calories in, calories out. It's nonsense. It's propaganda pushed by uh, big food, big agri-companies that want to be validated in selling you garbage. If it has a food label, basically, it's not food. There's no nutrition label on carrots, on chicken, on broccoli. They don't. There's no nutrition label on tomatoes. When you see a nutrition label, it's like a drug dealer that bought like a kilo of drugs and has mixed it with baking soda or something to create two Mm. kilograms of product. And that's Mm. what you know you've got anytime you're purchasing something with a food label on it. Typically, someone has purchased something that was food. They mix it with maybe other food elements and Mm. often non-food elements to create a volume of product and sell that to you. And so meat, vegetables, nuts, seeds, fruit, eggs, tea, coffee, water is a really Mm. good philosophy. People need adequate protein. This is the the nutrition seminar in three minutes. People need adequate protein every day. If you like animals, eat animal protein, if you like dairy, take dairy. If you don't, that's fine. But you do need to be aware that there's certain vitamins and minerals that you cannot get as a vegan. So you need to supplement like your B vitamins and seniors and vegans and vegetarians probably want to get like a creatine supplement as this is only found in animal products. But typically, generally speaking, it's meat, veggies, nuts, seeds, fruit, eggs, and then tea, coffee, water. Mm -hmm. And that is a really solid baseline to follow. Sugar feeds cancer. There's all sorts of books out there. Just like if I left a bucket of water in a closet and came back in a year, the water would have evaporated and turned into mold. We have Mm -hmm. a surplus of glucose in our system. Mm -hmm. It turns, it just feeds tumors and cancer cells. It just, it feeds Mm -hmm. them. And they, the cancer is very glucose hungry. So that's part of where intermittent fasting is so good for our health. Where actually our body tries to train itself to be more efficient with foods, even though you get adequate calories and nutrients in a day, just by condensing your eating window, your body optimizes for that. And when again, and and your brain, I think you can tell there is a brain. Maybe can you speak to the gut brain axis?
1: There is a connection, right? Do you know anything about that? Am I? Yes, there is. I think one of the things that we've discovered is that there are neurons in the heart and in the gut, not just in the brain. So we are a very highly connected system. Our brain doesn't just sit in our head on our shoulders in isolation from the rest of all the organs in our body. So there's a a real brain mind connection. I love Um, that. I I really liked your nutrition stuff. And I just wanted to say something because I think If you think about what happens to people at work, okay, they are being distracted, they're not being productive, they're working way too many hours, then they get home and the last thing they want to do is cook something from scratch. I I cook all my food from scratch I have for years. That takes more effort than just going and getting something that you can reheat. So I actually think that our health has been derailed a bit by the sabotaging of our um, energy at work. Mm. So we come home with no energy. And then we go, oh, couldn't be bothered cooking that from scratch. I'll just go and get some takeout or I'll um, use that, that packet mix on the shelf. So I think there's real links with this that people aren't really considering that oh, we yeah. are not getting the nutrients because we're so exhausted from our right. day. Mm. And,
0: and that's really important when you look at all the, there's a book written called Blue Zones and it talked about like the, basically the places on the planet different communities where people had the highest life expectancy per capita, more people Mm -hmm. lived past hundred than anywhere else. They were big on fasting and they ate high, like nutritionally dense, low calorie foods. And so this is just a huge, it's just a repeat common thing Mm -hmm. in the sense of Atkins had it right to a certain extent where we do need protein. We need adequate protein. That is critically Mm -hmm. important. But then the, as far as glucose and carbs you only need what fuels you. It's like Mm -hmm. a car with gas tank and that Mm -hmm. excess turns into fat and disease, cardiovascular disease. And so this is a really important, you can't outwork a bad diet. The other thing is that what you put in your mouth is what your body rebuilds itself from. So if you're if you're putting in weird chemicals, your body's got nothing natural to build itself out of. All chemicals are organic, okay, sure, but pollution is a concentration of chemicals where they're not serving a, a, a positive purpose, we'll say, right? So if I drink a bunch of bleach, bleach itself may be part of the, the periodic table of elements, but it's not good in my body. And so Mm -hmm. that's where what we eat does turn into what our bodies Mm -hmm. rebuild themselves from. And so this is a really important thing. So the baseline is always nutrition. Abs are made in the kitchen, not at the gym, but then the gym is a place where you get denser bones, you get stronger Mm -hmm. tendons. As we march into old age, we lose muscle mass and bone density. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a savings account, but in Mm -hmm. terms of health, that as we build up our physical fitness we march into old age with the savings account of law, abundance of muscle mass, very dense bones. Mm. And that's where you need the combination. Cardio metabolic conditioning is for your heart, your lungs, right? Helping your mm. cardiovascular system. Strength training mm. de- is for bone density, your tendons and ligaments. Mm. And then calisthenics are the only exercises that improve strength to weight ratio. Because mm. what I mean is that if I did weightlifting, I would add more muscle as I build that and it. You don't necessarily, a lot of women, they don't want to do weightlifting because they don't want to get bulky. You can, you would have to lift weights for 20, 15 years to get really like, you can get stronger by having denser muscles. They don't even necessarily have to get bigger. They can just become denser. And that is an important part. And muscle, if I filled my mug here to the top with fat and I filled the same volume space with muscle, the muscle would weigh almost twice as much. So weight is a terrible metric to use in terms of monitoring health. It's better to do body fat percentage because that is what's way more important. And so everybody needs a combination of weight, cardio, and calisthenics just to get the full benefits of that. And then, of course, I want to mention this before, but I was really fascinated to learn that things that don't move have smaller brains. And it makes Mm. sense if you thought about a car. If I had a car and I never drove it anywhere, I wouldn't need wheels. I wouldn't need a drivetrain. Mm. I wouldn't need brakes. I wouldn't need an exhaust pipe. I wouldn't need an engine. I wouldn't need Mm. headlights, potentially. I wouldn't need a horn. Mm. So when you move, things that move have more voluminous brains, more dynamic brains. I think that's a really important concept And that even though we're knowledge workers and a lot of us work on computers or with paper and pen, we still, we talk about waking up in the morning. I think it's a really important thing in in, in Chinese medicine sp- specifically in tai chi they have an idea of waking up with a, a bolt of a thunderbolt of vitality and the concept <laughs> is to wake up and to wake up your body systems mm. at the mm. same time so everything is turned on everything's functioning as you go into your day not mm. just pounding coffee and waiting for the coffee to wake you up mm. and I think that's an important little and, tip. and there.
1: how do we make so one of the things that um, we've always done in our organisation, we're all working virtually, but when we were together, we had walking meetings. I love that. You know, I like, love that. Why, why sit around? Um, yeah. Sorry. Or we would do things like, okay, we're stuck on this problem and we know the worst thing you can do is keep pushing through when you're stuck on a problem. Mm. The most The best thing you can do is get up and walk away from it. Mm. So we would maybe individually or independently, just go for a walk around the block. And then that. your brain doesn't stop thinking about it, but we would do a mindful walk. So it would be feeling your feet and your shoes as you're walking along. Right. To try, calm down that brain and conditions for the brain activity that you need in order for insight to flourish. And I can tell you without a doubt, every time we did that, someone would come back with an insight that switched it and flipped it. I, I believe that. And that's the problem. People stay stuck in the problem. And it's the worst thing you can do for the brain.
0: I love that. I love that. Linda, this has been so good. I feel like we could go for hours, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should
1: have asked you? No, I think I think it's been a delightful conversation. Seth. Thanks so much for having me on. your. Yeah, journey. it's been an honor and a pleasure. And if people want to learn more, where should they go to find out? Have a look at our website, neurocapability.com.au. And I'm also on LinkedIn. I post pretty much every day something of interest about the brain. So follow me on LinkedIn.
0: Mm. Follow her on LinkedIn. Go check out neurocapability.com.au N-E-U-R-O-C-A-P-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y.com.au for Australia. You can also look her up on LinkedIn. Linda Ray. What's her if it's neurocapability, L-I-N-D-A. R-A-Y. Linda, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us, knowing you have your own followers, your own community, your own people, your own schedule. Thank you for coming and sharing with me and mine so we can all improve our brains a little bit and do better.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.